0: Mike Duffy called them the Boys in Short Pants. And they both boys and girls, because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 84 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 85th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. Well, I'm Ethan Rainville. And this is our last episode of the year, and certainly our last episode of the decade. Of the
1: decade. So, yeah. Jeez, that's that's sad. How time flies. Rest in peace, 2010s. Yeah. I mean, they
0: were not that good, so I think we will. We can only hope for better. Yeah. Though likely I think we can only expect worse.
1: There are there's, there's some, there's some personal highlights in the past 10 years, you know, being my 20s. That, that's, uh, that's
0: that's small picture stuff, <laughs> that's Baby, That's baby brain. Don't do
1: that. <laughs> that I will never get back. Yeah, that's the right way to look at it. Let go, let go of my 20s entirely. Yeah. You're, you're what, like 29 now? Yeah, I'll be, I'll be 30 for the new millennium. Was your birthday it's again? Not the new millennium
0: in June. In June, yeah, the new millennium. We can only do that once. We we got to do it already, and you know the way. anyway. Um, yeah. So here's our last one of the year. A couple big things have happened, obviously, since our last one.
1: Yeah, we've uh, just been
0: busy. We were. Yeah, I mean, it's the holidays. I think we're not the only podcast to be on a somewhat. Uh,
1: we no longer live across the street. We from no each longer. Other, that so is true. Scheduling is much more significant,
0: though. We were both here for the holidays for the first time. Um, usually I'm I'm away, but yeah. Anyway, uh, all that said, uh, yes. So last time we talked a little bit around the the tottering throne of uh, of Andrew Shear uh, at his the, the Conservative Party throne, Oof, yes. and uh, it tottered, folks. It tottered right right over, and uh, he is now off of that chair. That snowball picked up steam very quickly. Indeed, uh, two mixed metaphors once again. Something this podcast loves to do. Uh, well, I say this podcast, but I really mean I really mean <laughs> it, Jen. Um, Yeah, so that's now—we now have a conservative leadership race in the next uh, half year, approximately. I believe the convention has been delayed to June from March or April?
1: No, I think it's more like November or September. Oh, that late. September. Oh, Um, God, that's grueling. But that's—well, no, don't mix things up here. That, unlike all of the media seem to do— The lying media, folks! (laughs) They're lying! That is, the policy convention has been yes. delayed, but that runs in parallel right. or apart from the leadership convention. Yes. Or the leadership race, which but that's end, not... ends in a convention of sorts. Okay. Um, but that will be... The date for that has yet to be set. Okay. The, the is, details, there, is there a buzz? Uh, no, not really. Um, There's a committee that has been struck... I see. ...to you know, work through these details, um, and they've announced the membership of that committee... Uh, but I don't I don't think we have much more information than that at this moment.
0: Okay, very good. Well, at any rate, at some point over the next year, the Conservatives will select a new leader. Uh, should we talk a little about early contenders or early figures of interest? I mean, I
1: think it's worth just throwing back for just 30 seconds, no, which is more like We can five never minutes. have
0: historical context in this show.
1: Uh, about... I'll use the title of the best piece um, written so far on this, which is The Takedown of Andrew Shear. Yes. Um, which is a piece I'd recommend written uh, by McLean's, uh, Shannon Proudfoot, Stephen Marr, uh, MDS, or Marie Danielle Smith, and Paul Wells. Um, it's sort of the most comprehensive piece that explains what happened. Um, I personally have a few bones to pick with it. Um, the short version. I mean, I, first of all, I'd say read the piece. It is the most comprehensive detailing of what happened, and I think overall it's generally pretty accurate. It's one of those things where we play hold music for a couple seconds while people run <laughs> yes, to read it. Pause, and then pause, read the piece. It's a reasonably long-form piece. I, I'm not
0: going to lie to you, Tanner. When podcasts have exhorted me to read or watch something, I've never you, once you've done You've never, so. never
1: once done it. Maybe well, usually you,
0: I'm, on, I'm walking somewhere. Maybe
1: you'll do it afterwards. Maybe yeah. you've already read it. Yes. Um the one bone I would pick with the piece is I think it loses some a level of granularity around uh, the dismissal of the executive director and some of the dynamics around that. Yes. Which is Dustin Van Voet. Um, formerly. For, well, <laughs> yes. Formerly, <laughs> Dustin Van Voot. Yeah. Um, To anyone who's been around Ottawa, conservative circles, often not even conservative circles, Dustin is a well-known figure, uh, well-liked and well-respected. And I think that continues to this day. I don't think there is... There wasn't like a widespread calling for his head or anything. No, which is why... For any other reason, His dismissal, I think, was... Odd? Odd. Um maybe heavy-handed or quick, I think there is a little more complexity around there, around that that has yet to be uh, fleshed out properly. Um, So I think that's the one area that people should not be jumping to conclusions on around sort of his role in all of this. Sure, yeah, that was a little murky. In terms of the the piece itself, I think it's, it's
0: pretty clear that knives were out relatively quickly, and I think what we observed last time, which is that Andrew Shearer seemed to basically be like, please, please eat me. Uh, I am I'm just a big turkey, and you can go ahead and <laughs> just eat me. Yeah,
1: I because, mean, I think uh, what we witnessed immediately after the election, I mean... he's a guy whose heart was not in it. Yes, yeah. and the piece tells it somewhat uh, in relation to his family. Yes. And sort of this moment with his son where he realized he didn't know the guy anymore, or he didn't know his son as well as he wanted to, and, and yeah. that sort of thing that, you know... Being a leader of a political party—it's involves, yeah. involves very yeah. real trade-offs yeah, if, with your family. Being an MP, being
0: the Speaker of the House, these are all jobs that take up a lot of time and are hard uh, on people's personal lives, and and you know definitely lead to you spending less time with your family. Being the leader of a political party is just another thing entirely. Like it's an order of magnitude uh, above and beyond.
1: Yes, undoubtedly. Um, except for maybe the 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 leaders of the political parties who are on the the fifth and sixth seats oh, i'm not sure being the leader of the green well
0: wow. well no i mean she really does she, she does it is a full-time it is a f- like several full-time commitments
1: okay. it really is maybe not Yves i have no actually <laughs> no
0: idea. Thing, I, I have no i have no sense of I, I can tell you on the on, like is. it's it is grueling right like it's really it's it's something else like it and the amount of support work that has to go into keeping that person, like, ready to go at all times yes. is, is truly... Busy,
1: briefed up, yeah, event it's... to event, driven yes. there. There, all, are, all
0: lo- there are a lot of boxes that have to get checked every
1: single day, pretty much no matter what. So, there, I mean, there was that, but let's not understate the role of the, uh, let's call it the schooling expense...
0: Oh, yeah, no, 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 yeah, this is side not... Event. I just want to say um, that, it, like, for people who, who sometimes maybe can smirk at the idea... That, like, you know, the, the family thing, it is genuinely quite something, and Andrew shear for all of his faults and political disagreements, uh, is, does seem like someone who genuinely likes to spend time with his family, and yes. certainly, you know, like, he, he has a very big family, presumably it means he likes spending time with them. Yeah, um, yeah. I, it, it is a real thing, though it's not to underplay the sort of, the poor results of the election, the poor campaign, and then the kind of straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, with the expense scandal.
1: Yeah, so what still remains reasonably hazy is whether or not that indeed was the straw that broke the camel's back, whether the timing was sort of coincidental, whether it was knives in the back on the way out. Yeah. Um it's seemingly the official version of events is that he'd made up his mind to resign and then this came out. So yeah. it was sort of unfortunately serendipitous timing. Um it, it's kind of easy to say that de facto, I think. But yeah, it's that's really the question. Yes. it remains up in the air. Was it the and I thing, thing that people is... draw their own conclusions? Sure. Yeah.
0: I think that's fair. But all that to say that we now get to see the spectacle of a second conservative leadership race in two and a half years.
1: So let's start, before we again get into that, just with the discussion, <laughs>
0: Man, this is like a Witcher timeline here. <laughs> for, for folks uh, who have been watching uh, Netflix's The Witcher, so I, I you'll, think, you'll get that joke.
1: I, I think the first thing to discuss after that is the decision to keep him on as interim leader. Yeah, that's baffling. Uh, because I, I lean on your NDP experience yeah, here and I th- Thomas Mulcair as the lame duck leader. I think for... it's fair to
0: say that that was one of the worst decisions the NDP made in the last five years.
1: And do you care to elaborate on that?
0: Well, it, basically, the incentive structure is just not there. Uh, it, let, let's take two case studies in interim leaders. Let's take Ronna Ambrose. Let's take Tom Mulcair. Ron Ambrose came into that job with no expect, and this is why I think the rule that interim leaders should not be in the running to keep it is a good one in that they come in with no expectation that they will retain it all they can do is raise their profile and perform well uh, and they have an incentive to do so because it it can help their career longer term even if they're not in the running this time people have a memory like hey that person did a really good job as interim leader maybe they'd be good for the the top job next time around so all, all you can do is help yourself really or hurt yourself if you're terrible at it but presumably if you want the job you're you're going into it wanting it and that brings me to the second half of that, which is Tom Mulcair, who is a guy who was embittered by his defeat, not only in the election, but then subsequently at the NDP convention at Edmonton. Um, and he was checked out. Like, he didn't care. Uh, he barely kept the lights on. He had no real drive to make anything happen, because what was the point, right? He wasn't running for re-election. He, w- he had lost as leader, convincingly. The first leader to be turfed, like actually turfed by delegates like he lost the vote he didn't just like fail to meet a high threshold yes um so there was no reason for him to try right like there was what was he gonna get from doing a good job as interim leader So,
1: in in a way... And
0: he's, you know, spent the last six months sort of taking parting shots at the party uh, from various (laughs) cable news and newspaper columns. And, like, fair enough, right? Like, I think it's not unreasonable to expect that Tom Wilker might be somewhat embittered by the experience. Like, I don't really hold that against him. Like, I, you know, think he did... He lost a winnable election and uh, then proceeded to do nothing for two years. So, like, I have my own feelings about him. But, like, I don't really hold it against him that he's bitter. But, like, I really think it was a huge mistake to let him continue embittered in that role, uh, especially in a time when the party really did need leadership.
1: So I guess the question is, how many parallels are there between uh, Thomas Mulcair being removed from leader and Andrew Scheer stepping down?
0: So Andrew Scheer, I think, is a guy, first of all, just at the personal level, who is not (laughs) as bitter (laughs) as says Mulcair uh so presumably he will be trying at least a little harder and i think the he is someone who's come up in the conservative party where Mulcair was never really of the ndp uh in the same way so i think those dynamics are are different and do deserve you know some reflection on the other hand that incentive structure thing is still there he said he wants to spend more time with his family but also i'm going to do another six months of this right like He's gonna do it like halftime. He gets. He gets to keep the house, though. He does get to keep the house. Um, but no, I mean, like, I think he's clear that keeping the person who is leaving on is inviting indifferent, checked-out leadership.
1: So um, like, it doesn't guarantee it. I just think it invites it. Sure, and I'm I'm of two minds, and part of this is obviously. Um, made more complex by the looming expense scandal. Yeah, Um yeah, there is <laughs> There's the investigation. There's, yeah. you know, there are now su- sufficient question marks around how these expenses yeah. were dealt with, etc., etc. Sure. Et do you
0: want my opinion on this, though? If if he I, I sta- don't, I don't want. If your he opinion. stayed on, it's because this will amount to nothing. The decision has been made that this will. You know, this was a well, who, a
1: thing that has been taken out of the drawer and has been put back in. It really depends, though, and this this is where it gets tricky because it seemed like a lot of the outrage was driven by the conservative fund, yes, and members of the conservative namely. fund, <laughs> <laughs> namely,
0: <laughs> namely, someone, yes, um, just won the order of, or was awarded the was appointed to the order of Canada yes. the other day,
1: um, but. The decision to stay on as interim leader was reported as a unanimous decision of caucus.
0: Yes, much like Mulcair, actually.
1: Um, So, I mean, that can change, and that may yet still change. Yeah. Um, But for the time being, you have a leader staying on who is under this cloud, and it's somewhat problematic. Had this cloud never occurred, had he stepped down and there had been no sort of inner party fight, um, I think I would be very comfortable with him staying on as interim leader. Sure. Um, You know, keep... The ship afloat, you keep it in the same direction until a new leader is chosen, and they take it in a, dra- in a dramatically different direction. Uh, Ambrose was sort of interesting as a uh, interim leader in that she put a stamp on it in yes. a way that a lot of interim leaders don't. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to give a parallel example, not, not that I know much right now about the Ontario Liberal Party, but I suspect that their interim leader has not put much of a stamp on the Ontario Liberals. Mm-hmm. Um but Ambrose pivoted, at least initially, and there's at least two big policy positions that she changed the party's direction on. Yeah. Uh, missing and murdered indigenous women and... The, other the sexual assault judge training. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, because that wasn't oh, a live okay. issue. Sure. That, that was just her PMB yeah. and uh, a project of hers. Um, there, there's another one that's eluding me right now. But she notably significantly pivoted as soon as she was in the interim leader role. And in doing so, she created somewhat of a legacy for herself. Yeah. Not only through her strong performance in question period, but also in taking different policy decisions. Yeah. And that can be quite controversial because an interim leader's role is not necessarily to pivot the party's position on things. Sure. She did it regardless And regardless. I can see your (laughs) your smirky (laughs) grammar gnome over there. Um and to to effectively great effect and in terms of building her legacy as a short period interim leader um, it's you know those all amount to essentially the reason why she is today somewhat See, well that's exactly what i mean as, right like, as the as a potential future leader and yeah. polling seems to have her ahead and if she runs she seems to be the one to beat yes Um, But there's still the big asterisk as to whether or not she'll run.
0: Yeah, but that's exactly what I mean by like, even if you're not angling for this time, with a strong performance, you set yourself up really nicely for next time. And I think that she did that very effectively if she wants it. So, So, we'll see.
1: Yeah, so in in that way, it's good for growing stars because Ambrose's star like exploded as interim leader in a way that it never did when she was just a a, a cabinet minister. You know, a a pretty unremarkable mid-tier minister. Until she was... Until she was leader interim leader, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Um, the other piece of it um, is that...
0: I'm just going to note that we have, we have gently segued into speaking <laughs> about leadership candidates now, or potential leadership candidates.
1: Um, just just very quickly. Um, the other piece of the interim leadership piece is that it doesn't give... I mean, you, you've you sort of alluded to it, but it doesn't give the opportunity to build a new mm-hmm. star. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also that Andrew Scheer, so far as you can somewhat pick out, seems to want to stay as an elected official for the foreseeable future.
0: Yeah, he's a guy who's lived his entire life on the on the government dime. <laughs> that Never had a real job in his life. He's
1: not necessarily looking to take the Mulcair approach. Yes. Um, I think he sees himself potentially as a future cabinet minister and a future conservative government sort sure. of thing. Um, so a, a very different road laid out for to him. To keep
0: suckling at the teat. <laughs>
1: Public service, very noble. Yeah. Um, so where did you want to go then? So, I mean, uh,
0: I think we can talk about potential contenders. I think you've discussed Ron Ambrose as a potential contender, which I think I think we agree. She's someone who would, I think, I I think she's someone that the conservative party has a good impression of, but not necessarily a very strong one.
1: So I think the discussion of potential contenders is almost as important as the discussion of how this individual will be chosen. Because these sort of go hand in hand. Sure, right? yeah. So do you want to talk about the rules or... Well, very briefly, the rules are more or less the same. Yes. The, the same well. system. The points system based on writings. Which is the point system, which is, the, writings, the yeah. point system uh, which is fundamentally sort of a brokerage system. Yeah,
0: and for people who are not aware, what happened last time was that every writing in Canada was given 100 points, essentially. Yeah. And that you got as many points... You got an amount of points from each writing corresponding to the percentage of people in that writing who selected you as their choice. So
1: in practice, this means as a member in a Western Canadian EDA, yeah, um, with hundreds of members, your vote Four is thousands. worth a, a fraction yeah. of a point. If you're in Toronto Centre, where there are 30 Conservatives, you're 3.3 <laughs> points, right? Yes. So there's a regional waiting, and this is sort of a holdover or a, a cobbling together of the PC reform uh, leadership systems. Yes. Uh, And it creates a a brokerage system that resulted very distinctly in our result last time, which was Andrew Shear on the 13th ballot with 50.2 or whatever
0: whatever, percent.
1: yeah. Yeah. So it creates a consensus candidate, but the problem, I mean, the downside to creating a consensus candidate in this way is that this is a consensus candidate who is some people's Second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, thirteenth. seventh, thirteenth <laughs> choice—quite literally. Yeah. Um, so at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, you don't have a lot of first rounders in your camp. It's all fourth, fifth rounders. Yeah. Um, so you don't have a strong. A strong... So I think you could
0: only rank ten last time. Is that correct?
1: Mm. Something like that. God, I don't remember. Doesn't matter. Incidentally, yeah, I, I think I yeah. think you could. Um, so. Somewhat, somewhat problematic in that regard, but that's staying. Yeah. Where there is room for flexibility is around some of the, the parameters of the contest, the buy-in. Um, the, the buy-in both in monetary terms as well as signatures or endorsements or however the party wants to structure that. So mm-hmm. that is very much uh, to be determined still. Yeah. And there's a lot of conversation happening right now around what that should look like. The arguments for why it should be tighter, why it should be looser, etc. Mm-hmm. I think the consensus seems to be going towards uh, we don't want 13 candidates on the stage again. Yeah. We don't want to go bust on purchasing podiums. Um, <laughs> that leadership races should not be a $25,000 ticket to raising one's profile nationally. Yeah. Um, like, it, sure. it, it should just be out of... The reach of anyone contenders
0: like it really needs to be contenders really instead of
1: yeah. But again, this is the dynamic: is are you closing off business people um, with no political careers? Do you want to close off business people with no political careers? Well, remember
0: the business guy with no political career ran last time, so
1: maybe I don't know. <laughs> are you talking about uh, uh, Rick Peterson? <laughs> I, I'm Peterson. sure you're talking Peterson
0: about <laughs> <laughs> uh, No, I was not talking about <sighs> Petersonleader.com yeah. uh, no, <sighs>
1: Peterson <Leader.com. laughs> or. Uh, um, you know, to pull a comparable from the uh, NDP leadership race, uh, our dear guerrilla leader, yeah, uh, Pat Stogren. So that that type of individual, or do you want to keep it to career politicians? Well, career politicians or previously elected politicians, both sure. at the provincial or federal level, yeah. Um
0: it, all interesting questions through that committee to decide, I suppose. Yes. yes. So
1: something to stay tuned and, and, and watch for, as yes. it will be very significant in terms of okay, who can, gets, we, get, who gets can we get to the goddamn meat and potatoes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Go ahead. Who would you like to talk about? Uh
0: so I mean we've talked about Ron Ambrose, yes. and as I said, I think she's someone the, the the base of conservative members has a good, if vague, impression of. Does that sound
1: right to you? Um I would I'd say less vague, perhaps, than some of the other people on the list. I think they have a reasonably strong uh, impression of her, and I think the polling is indicative of them having perhaps the strongest impression of her. Well, I think of they have a, any, no of what any you're, candidate. What
0: you're saying is that they have a good impression of her, and a lot of people know her. I don't know how resilient that would end up being in an actual leadership race, right? Like, I think she has a lot of soft parked support of people who think, "Oh yeah, she was pretty good," and like. Sure. I just don't think that it runs very deep. Sure. Right? Like for you know various understandable reasons.
1: Yeah, I mean, in terms of most people's picture of her is of is not hers minister, and they're not generally people aren't familiar with. Ambrose. No, it's of like reasonably good with, with minister Ambrose. Yeah, it's, it's with leader Ambrose. Yeah,
0: which is like that's that sticks with you, but at the same time, it's like stuff that.
1: And and you're right. That is yeah. a. Very different, being a an interim leader and skipping through sort of the selection process. Yeah. Selection processes can be, you know, nasty, brutish, and short, or um, nasty, brutish, and very yeah. long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so <I> <laughs>
0: They're really just nasty and brutish. I think is uh...
1: um, so whether or not her esteem holds up throughout that entire process whether yeah. she's able I, to I effectively think fight off the attack. No, I will, think it's
0: very easy for a lot of people in the conservative universe to paint her as kind of too soft and too lefty. I'm mm-hmm. just I don't necessarily think that's the case. I'm just saying that I think that that is a case other leadership contestants can make. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, I'm just saying like I think that's that's certainly a live possibility. Sure. Um not that I think she is you know too soft or too lefty certainly but uh i think you know it's it's an argument people can make um i think the other contender that we discussed last time uh was Aaron o'toole hi Aaron, if you're still listening to the show (laughs) uh fan fan of the podcast um yeah i think also a strong contender came fourth last time third third
1: third or fourth
0: yeah yeah because it it was uh it was sheer it was bernier it was him and then it was uh trost and chong that the order that was the order yeah so I mean, a strong—he—he he ran a strong third place coming from not very much last time. I think he's people. He's someone who impressed conservative members last time around, and certainly I think has continued to impress people. One of the few survivors of the shellacking the CBC took in the sort of larger Toronto region, uh, um, which I think was of significance, as we will discuss later. Sure. Um, so I—I I think he could definitely have a strong race he's not someone who's really seen as ideologically too far in any direction of the party like he there's not really like a wing that i strongly associate with him unless you like you you know the party better than i do so perhaps i'm mistaken there but
1: no i I think you're you're right in that regard yeah Um, i mean he's not i mean i i don't know his personal views but he's not you know, a known strong social conservative or a known like any, libertarian, any distinct yeah. camp, um, yeah, with, which, within the party, which
0: can be an asset and a drawback, but yes. I think um, usually an asset in a leadership race,
1: especially a leadership race built around brokerage of sorts.
0: Indeed, um, I think so. I think the, the, the candidate uh, whose campaign I am most personally excited yeah, for... Yeah, I, I was
1: surprised you went to no, anyone No, because, you know, but... you, know,
0: I, you know, just started a, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> a
1: little... A little taste, a little sousson. Um it, just it took you so long. I'm surprised you didn't open the podcast with... Uh, oh, I wanted to. Pierre but... Polyev is the next leader of the Conservative Party.
0: So, Pierre Polyev has the, the MP from Carleton, uh, which is outside of Ottawa here is someone who has a very similar resume to Andrew Shear in that it's, he's basically got elected at, like, an absurdly young age and will continue to be elected into his 70s if he wants to. Yes. Um, and he is someone who... I, he was the conservative finance critic for much of the last parliament. Uh, and I remember a very key moment uh, where, I think on his first or second day as finance critic, he betrayed a fundamental misunderstanding of how bonds work. Uh, and then it, it really clicked for me that, like,
1: oh... I don't care about your academic definition of bonds. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm aware of your textbook definition. But that's oh. actually... And actually, this is a great bookend to oh. that. Because the other day, uh, when Bill Morneau was bringing the fiscal update, uh, Pierre Polyev comes out and says, we're headed for a made-in-Canada recession. And then when journalists ask him, but like, no economists think that, he said, I'm aware of your textbook definition of a recession. And for me, personally, I, I'm much more... Um, I have a theory of conservatism about the base of conservatism that I think is more evidence-based than most people's, in the sense that I look at who actually wins leadership races in conservative elections, and it's the person who throws the most red meat to the base, and Pierre Polyev is 100% that guy. So, yeah. I think that the conservative base over the last couple years has only gotten angrier about the... The fact of a Trudeau government—they've only gotten angrier since his re-election, and I think the person who is able to effectively channel that anger uh, is the person who's going to win.
1: So this and Pierre is... Polyev
0: knows how to. He he is a living, breathing conservative fundraising email that makes eighty-year-olds like reach for their their heart pills and send like hundred and fifty dollars every couple of weeks.
1: So this is the broader question. He is wired into the conservative <laughs> lizard brain.
0: Like, he he, has, he is a shaman of conservative rage. Like, he, he has a
1: primal connection to the conservative spirit world. Let, let me add to your lovely, illiterate, or descriptive analysis of Pierre Polyev. Um, I've said it before on this podcast, but it was, it was quite a while ago, that he, um, despite how much he enrages people both, on television, and you know the the Twitter world of Canadian Twitter politics. Yeah, um, he can actually be incredibly charming in a room in totally. front of people uh, doing the kissing babies. Yeah. and Giving speeches. But I, I about wouldn't say he's not why we shouldn't use talking points and words that people don't understand and things along those lines. Yeah, and he, I I would totally agree with you. I I just think that is a side of him that is. Um, Misunderstood yeah. by a lot of casual observers, So this they see this guy and they'd say, well, "How could anyone ever well, vote for him?" He,
0: he, yeah, like he, can he be is very, a guy very persuasive. He is the Thunderdome guy. Like he he like conservatives love watching him into Thunderdome. <laughs> no, because like the thing with liberals is that they're obsessed with being right, capital R right. Like they they love being right. And Pierre Paul is a guy who doesn't care about being wrong. So it just he, he they cannot. Like, it doesn't, like, I'm aware of your textbook definition. What do you say to that? And you're like, well, but, but, but that's not right. And they're like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't give a shit. And then what do you do? Right? Like, liberals have, this is the exact same thing with Trump uh, and with Boris Johnson, is that they are guys who fundamentally do not play the game. They, they don't care if, if newspaper columnists think that they're right or smart. They just, they don't give a shit. And neither do conservative voters.
1: So here is, here's, here's my push to the Catch 22 in, in the whole thing. Um, the description you've, Given uh, of, of which I would agree with parts of <laughs> uh, of, of Pierre Polyev um, is not necessarily one that aligns with people's thinking of where the Conservative Party should go. I agree, newspaper for, columnists don't like him. For the winnability of the next federal election.
0: Yes, but people are going to be looking at who most effective... People didn't think Donald... People were not voting for Donald Trump because they thought he was the most electable. They were voting for Donald Trump because he was the guy who pressed all the right buttons that made them angry and made them feel good about their anger. Sure.
1: And and that is where he's very potent. Yeah, which is... That's so it. That, I, that's... I think, no, but I think this is going to be one of the the central questions that needs to be reckoned with. Um, in the conservative um, leadership race. Yes. Is is it a question of, is the policy and comms wrong, or do we need to double down on the policy and comms? Yeah. Um, and depending on who you listen to, some will say, we didn't go far enough. Others will say, we went too far. Mm-hmm. And the decision for the membership to make will be one of, do we pick a, someone who's going to broaden the tent? Yeah. And look for very tangible ways to appeal to Quebec and to yeah. the GTA and to all of these other uh, areas, perhaps jettisoning, jettisoning some of the social conservative baggage that um, Andrew Shear had. And Pierre Polyev largely does that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, again, not much of a social conservative halo around Pierre Polyev. Yeah. Um, I actually don't really know who the Social Conservative heir apparent to the Brad Trost sort of throne would be. Brad Trost, Andrew Scheer. Yeah, I'm Joint not sure. throne would be um, of the candidates um, running this time around. Or specula- they, would not be, they would not be caught dead re- sitting that close to each other. Dude. <laughs> running <laughs> this time around. Um, but that that's going to be one of the central questions. Yeah. And- is, is there a significant pivot, or is it a continued double down? Andrew will- Shear, in his own way, was a bit of a double down. Yes. Um, Harper with Extremely, a smile yeah. was very much his message. Yeah. Stayed on track. Changed less policy areas than Rona Ambrose sure. did. I can't name a single area where Andrew Shear che- broke with sort of conventional policy wisdom. No, from it was the not Harper a Harper years. Yeah,
0: it was not a, a, a activist leadership in a policy sense. I, I think there, there's two sort of things here. The first is that. Uh, I, this is definitely a battle between the conservative superego and the conservative id, right? And I, I personally think that if you look at recent history, the conservative id tends to be much stronger. Uh, we will see. I, I could, this might not apply to Canada. We will see. I also think that it, perhaps one thing that is very indicative is looking, talking to conservative voters and talking to the conservative base about why they think they lost and people is especially in the prairies like cannot fathom why anyone would vote for justin trudeau yeah like, they don't understand it and that to me suggests the strength of the conservative id in the sense that it's like you are just operating outside of where pundits are like outside of where newspaper columns yeah. are right like that's not the debate that the conservative party is having internally so i think or maybe it is in parts of it in in ottawa in toronto in montreal but i don't like I was in Saskatchewan for the last two weeks of the election, and I remember people going and voting in the advance polls wearing big fuck Trudeau sweaters, and like having the time and like you know great. Yeah, I, I find I think democracy should be seen as more more of a carnival and a festival than it actually is now. Usually, it's very very grim. And you want the the liberty sort of sausages or the I, that that would,
1: the voting sausages? I actually that think the, that would be fantastic. That yeah,
0: that would that would be great. Yeah, and mandatory voting for that matter. But no, I, I like I think that people they those people were there to dunk on the libs, right? Like they were there to just show fuck this guy. And I think that is a really, 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 really powerful feeling that like Pierre Polyev, I think, is the absolute best person to to whisper to.
1: Sure. but to to an extent it's a reversion to reform. Yeah, totally. Um it's a reversion to reform and it's receding from the coalition that harper successfully i'm I'm not saying that it's a winning political strategy in the long term for them i'm saying that that is the impulse Uh, understood and yes (laughs) and and i don't necessarily disagree with that i think the impulse is very strong but fundamentally um that's the question that needs to be reckoned with is does the party and does the party membership recognize that and go very consciously in a different direction
0: yes it's super ego yes to be determined eat, eat the that. Bi- eat the big juicy steak or the big <laughs> plate of sissy vegetables. Conservatives,
1: you know what you want to do. You know
0: what you want. <laughs> to be seen. Indeed. Uh, any other potential? Oh, Peter McKay.
1: Well, I mean, there, there's a laundry list of people. I think um, he's the
0: significant one to talk about. I know that there's like, a but he's significant in the sense that he sat the last one out, and people sort of talk endlessly about him. I think I said this last time too. Is that I think Peter McKay has a ver- has a glass jaw. He is the Joe Biden of the Conservative Party.
1: Yes. I, I think, I mean, going reverting back to his uh his ministerial days in the Harper government.
0: There's not like a big success you can point to, and there are a lot of little failures.
1: Little too large. A little too large, yes. Failures. Helicopter sized. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was being generous. So yes, I, I think that analysis is right. I don't think his base is that strong. I think he rides a bit on this sort of historical big goodwill. reputation of being one of the founding fathers of the party yeah. through sort of a cloak and dagger. And there's a lot
0: of, like, soft liberal people who sort of think PC and think good. Uh, like, the good conservatives are the PCs, when it's like the PCs actually were generally, like, the more weaselly shitty conservatives. <laughs> uh, I actually have some respect for the reform people. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah,
1: so... Yeah, I, I understand that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean
0: like peter just to circle back on the weaseliness of peter mckay he's a guy who ran for the pc leadership claiming he wouldn't do a merger and like did a deal with another pc candidate orchard Orchard, the orchard accord (laughs) the, the apple tree agreement uh that he would not do so and then immediately went back and did that and then got his ass handed to him by the much more disciplined and ideologically rigorous stephen harper um a man I respect more in every single way than Peter McKay. Uh, I, I'm not joking. Like I do have a lot of respect for Stephen Harper as a politician. Um, yeah, so I, I think he has a total glass jaw. He, he's a known weakling and weasel that I think would be uh, revert back to his
1: weaselly ways. I'm I, pissing off all the conservatives today, aren't I? <laughs> no, good, I, mean, I don't. Good. I don't disagree with that assessment of Peter McKay. I think he is sort of got. Gotten into the comfortable uh, law firm life, yes. And I don't think I'm glad will... You, you will
0: co-sign my branding with him as a weasel. <laughs> I
1: don't think he will come into the race unless he sees himself if, as the, if, the if, heir he sees, apparent. if he sees
0: his own shadow, he will I...
1: <laughs> <laughs> run right back into his hole. That is not. That, that is a groundhog. Um, it is not Weasel Day. It is Groundhog Day. Shubin Sam as a weasel cousin. <laughs> Uh, I just think he is sort of standing in the wings to try and claim the throne. Yeah. If, if, if it looks Rona, hard or he's anyone, going to work yes. hard, he's not going to... If not, there seems to be this coterie of conservative elder statesmen who just delight in having their name in the papers every four years yes. or every four to eight years for various leadership. I want Joe Oliver to go back in. He's a guy <laughs> who
0: could talk to the id,
1: too. I wasn't thinking Joe Oliver, but I was thinking... Uh, Bernard Lord even, Oh even yeah Maybe uh, Bernard Charest Um Who? Charest Oh <laughs> Ch- Why'd
0: you say Bernard? Jean Jean Charest. Sorry <laughs> I was like Bernard Charest no. <laughs> Who the
1: fuck is that? <laughs> Mix it up with Bernard Lord Yes okay. Jean Charest Bernard yes. Lord And for
0: those of you unaware Former New Brunswick And liberal Or uh, Quebec uh,
1: Premiers respectively And Federal politician For at least one of them Yes Um yeah, they seem to just delight in musing about it. Yes. And they both have very very comfortable jobs in the private sector. Le, Bernard Lord has a reasonably young family. Le Press, some of the Le Press reporting around Bernard Lord was laughably bad. Yes. Oh, it would be an absolute coronation yeah. if I mean, I do
0: actually think he would be a genuinely strong candidate for people who want a a moderate-ish conservative party. He was organizers
1: in all the provinces. He He knows at least 12 people. He is
0: a very charismatic guy and ran a very red province uh, considerably well uh, for a progressive conservative. So, like, I do think he would be a strong... I don't think he's going to run,
1: so... Yeah, there's a bit of a a Canadian... Premiers tend not to do that well in national competitions.
0: Yeah, I mean, partially it's because they have a record.
1: Sort of like governors in... uh... Well,
0: governors typically did quite well in presidential races. Not recently, though, no. It's much more people coming from the legislative branch these days, or people coming from entirely outside of politics. It really is having an executive record leaves you open because you have an executive record. record. And legislative records now are being more closely scrutinized, kind of in the absence of executive records, right? Like, I think that that's an increasing phenomenon. and Increasingly, like, you have people like Pete Buttigieg who uh, have, you know, a executive record as mayor of a relatively small city and a private sector record uh, that is not very long.
1: So people long, obsess over the details. Long enough to fix uh, bread prices. Yes, right? indeed. Bread truth. <laughs> bread truth now. <laughs>
0: Uh, I wasn't going to go there. No, but, uh, yeah, all that to say that, yes. Ha- like For instance, Brad Wall would be a really interesting person. But, like, that last budget was so painful that, like, mm, you know, it well, would be tough.
1: I mean, that was his, the end of his era, right? It yeah. was that, oh, yeah. that budget more or less put him out of business. Um, and now he is comfortably... Sort of sitting back as an elder statesman who weighs in on topics on BNN and elsewhere. Yeah, and works for the oil industry in Calgary
0: now. Or actually, no. So he worked for the oil industry in Calgary and is actually now working for the hydro industry in Manitoba. So go figure.
1: Yeah, but all very different than uh, federal politicians, for instance, like Pierre Polyev. Yes, whose legislative record, because legislative records are very different in Canada. Yeah, because you don't really really have them. Yeah, because we don't have the system of like. Well, he was part of the executive in the three years. In a limited The Fair capacity, Elections Act, actually, I guess as is the... <laughs> Minister of Democratic Reform... Or reform. Reform institutions. Yeah. Uh, the only piece of legislation I can associate with him offhand is... The Unfair Elections Act? The Fair <laughs> Elections <laughs> Act. Hashtag Yeah. That was um, a good one. I enjoyed that. So the, even even of the people who have executive records to run on, yeah. it is very different in Canada because... Yes. ...the way our legislation works. Indeed. Um, like, I can't think of any... Aside from Rona Ambrose's Just Act, I can't think offhand. Of, no, I mean, and, and what also legislative record, would and be also the legislative the records
0: of people in uh, sort of an executive cabinet. You know that like their legislation is not like their legislation
1: in the way that like it is. Yeah, so much more so in the American the, system. The concept of cabinet solidarity sort of binds everyone together, and with exactly. everyone. I mean, and with. Candidates, presumably like Polyev and Ambrose, who would perhaps be on a future stage together, debating that record is actually reasonably difficult because they sat around the same table and agreed to make the same decisions. Yes. Or maybe they didn't. Or maybe but, they, but they wouldn't them, tell but us they, that they, they yeah. stood by them. <laughs> exactly. And, um so they would have to make a very noticeable break yeah. from their past track record in order yeah. to distinguish themselves and it gets
0: So all that to say anybody else that comes to mind?
1: I mean, there are certainly others, um, but I think those are... Like, James Moore is one of the sure. perennial candidates when yeah. this sort of thing is mentioned. Um, there are... You know, there's a, a CEO in Ottawa who said he'd throw his hat in the ring. Okay. Of Maxis Consulting, a staffing firm in town. Um, That's one of the ones that does, like, short-term... Temp staffing Okay, yeah, I can government. see that being popular. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, again... So that, that's Some like of these people throwing their names into the ring before knowing what the. So, for like the no tools and the people with the established records, yeah, 100% start building your campaign, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because fundamentally, you have the institutional support likely to cross whatever threshold is required or set by the party. For a CEO of a company in Ottawa, to float your name out there or a random staffer to float, former staffer to float their name. Yeah. It, it sort of is self promotion y because you have no idea what the barrier to entry is going to be, yeah. what the amount of support you're going to require. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, Ken, it, but this a,
0: business fundamentally is a lot about self promotion. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so. All of that is to say, don't take all of the names too seriously. No. Um, sort of in the vein of Bernard Lord and others. Yes, I would... Yeah.
0: Anyway, um, there's one thing I want to talk about, which is uh, we were musing about sort of what were the big uh, trends of the decade, uh, now that we were sort of in that retrospective mood. And one I wanted to talk about uh, as I something I think we can... You know, in history, that takes a tortuous path, but... Uh, I think something we can say—not safely say—but say I think has missed its mark or fizzled a little bit is the idea of the big shift. Etienne, do you want to introduce our
1: listeners to the idea of the big shift? Ooh, lucky me! The big shift um, was a best-selling book um, published, I think, in twenty. 13. You just looked this up, dude. 2013. Come on. It's 2013. Maybe the, t- the hardcover the soft copy was in 2014. Something like that. Paperback um, is what you're looking for. Done by Daryl Bricker and John Ibbotson. Of Ipsos and Globe and Mail fame. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, so the thesis of the book, and this is a book that circulated basically like wildfire uh, in conservative circles. Um, Ibbotson claims... Well, and national columnists in media circles, too. Sure, but yeah.
0: I think... Perhaps even a sort of class that you could sort of call...
1: Uh, <laughs> L- Laurentian, perhaps. Indeed. And, uh, Ibbotson takes credit for coining uh, the term Laurentian consensus. I'm not sure if he coined Laurentian elite, but at least consensus. Um, and it's, it's talking about sort of the power dynamics structurally within Canada federally. Um, and basically identifies sort of the standing block of power... Or they identify rather the long-standing block of power that's led of evil to the liberal gover- uh, liberal party's permanence in yeah the sort of liberal Canadian hegemony in federal politics will. the natural governing party all yes. of this is rooted in sort of a power base of Ottawa Toronto and Montreal yeah with you know other tendrils elsewhere but yes. really centered around large cities. Yes, Uh, along the St. St. Lawrence River. Central Canadian, Eastern Canadian. Though we're not
0: actually on the St. Lawrence River here, and neither
1: really is Toronto, but... Yeah. Nevertheless. Yeah. (laughs) Centered around these cities, and this is where uh, their leadership comes from. This is where their uh, ties into academia and media and cultural... Historically, where all the money came from. And all all of it. Yeah. Um, Every sort of conceivable notion of power, be it money... Uh, wisdom whatever else you want to call it mm-hmm. uh, it all came from these three cities and this has led to and the the uh, homogeny or the homogeneous nature of this block politically has led to the liberal party being in power yeah. for the majority of canada's history mm-hmm. um broken from time to time by conservatives um but still reasonably reliably liberal
0: yeah oh and it's fair to say also that like the conservative coalitions when they worked were coalitions Diefenbakers was i think very unstable uh but it was western populists and chunks of ontario true uh and then mulroney famously had a coalition of quebec nationalists and western populists, and then harper And this is, I think, what the central thesis of the book is that Harper's coalition of Westerners and new Canadian Ontario suburbanites uh, would remake federal politics fundamentally. So. By creating a new stable and durable coalition of voters that would vote reliably conservative.
1: Yeah, I think durable is one of the operative words there. Durable, I think, is the operative word. Um, In that. Because in, in there U- have this, been
0: strong coalitions before, but they've always fallen apart.
1: Yes. That every conservative leader has basically had a paint your own coalition where they've decided yeah. how to appeal. And Andrew Scheer, for instance, very consciously in this election tried to appeal to Quebec. Like, yeah. there was a heavy, heavy amount. I mean, all, all the parties did. Which was smart. Harper's yeah. coalition in did not really include Quebec meaning. 2011 yeah. did not have a meaningful Quebec component. A, couple, a dozen, maybe?
0: If uh, that.
1: If that. Six, Six, five? half
0: dozen? Yeah, not very many. I think it was six. They lost some in 2011, actually, as
1: I recall. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, in 2011 when they won, it was actually an incredibly small number of MPs. Christian Paradis, Stephen Blaney, um, Beth and there were one or two other ministers, and then there was Jacques Gord outside of... Uh, Cabinet, yeah. Uh, ...Denny Lebel. Yeah. There, there was really only a handful. Yeah. Um, And so Andrew Scheer, in trying to piece together an electoral or a winning coalition this time, they were banking on Quebec. They were banking on the GTA.
0: I actually think Quebec was a really smart place for them to look for votes uh, in the sense that Quebec has two electorates fundamentally. It has a urban Montreal electorate that pretty much overwhelmingly votes liberal liberal every election except for 2011. And you have a sort of soft rural nationalist vote uh, that votes typically in one direction. Uh, what that direction is changes frequently. Uh, in 2011, it was uh, the NDP. Before that, it was the Bloc for a long time. Uh, it was the Liberals in 2015. And it could easily have been the Conservatives this year. Like, I don't think it was a stupid gamble. I think they had a strong Quebec team. They had people like Gérald who we've spoken about before. They had a prevailing trend towards cultural conservatism in the province um, that cut them both ways Sure, uh, because there are parts of their cultural conservatism. Social versus multicultural. Yeah, exactly. So that, that ended up really backfiring in that way, but it was not a stupid thing to do. And I think, in fact, it's a very smart play for conservatives to try that again in the future, just with a leader that doesn't have the kind of social conservative baggage of issues that... Don't play at all in Quebec. Anyway. Ke- yeah, sorry. I was gonna <laughs> say, Quebec is like
1: catnip for you. you. You can't resist discussing it. No, I cannot. Um, because Quebec um, is not actually really detailed in like no, in the big
0: show No, and they sort of take the sort of non-conservativeness of Quebec for granted in so, this book, which I think is foolish, but to, to for spit, the reasons
1: I've just to said. To spit out the thesis sort of coherently and all together here. <laughs> Effectively what it is is saying that within Canada there are demographic shifts that are occurring, yes, that will result in a more permanent yeah. solidification of a conservative base yes. in the country that will see
0: namely new Canadian suburbs and a growing west.
1: Yes, new Canadians specifically in Ontario. And Vancouver in Vancouver split well, among yeah, I'd call that growing west very distinct yeah. Um, Chinese Canadians and yeah, et cetera. Southeast Asians, uh, particularly Chinese Canadians in Vancouver, who are culturally conservative yeah. Um, so leaning on the social issues in order to tie them into the Conservative Party, and that creating... when you said Southeast
0: Asians, did you mean South Asians and East Asians?
1: Yes. Okay. It's like
0: it's not like a giant <laughs> Thai voting block. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um. So all of that is to say the idea was about building this permanent base, basically for the first time in Canadian history or for the first time in a very long time, that conservatives could lean on to reliably win elections.
0: Election to election conservative base that could be like plausibly majority scale every time.
1: So it was the combination of suburbs, uh, suburban and sort of bedroom community voters. Yeah who are focused on a combination of economic yes. pocketbook issues with the ethnic blocs who are interested in some of that, some yeah. of the crime and justice, yeah. um, but also more socially conservative. Yeah, um, And the question is, does this thesis hold up?
0: So this was written in 2013, which was during the Harvard majority, and right around the time Justin Trudeau became the liberal leader. Uh, I think there was a lot of... There was a glut in the takes industry from between 2006 to about 20... Well, about the time of this book, actually, that were predicated on the unique moment of weakness of the Liberal Party historically in Canada. The the, the Liberal Party has never been as weak as it was from about 2004 to 2015. Never. Like, if if you look back in the history in Canada... You've just never seen a Liberal Party that week. The only exception I can maybe think of is during the First World War when you had the Laurier Liberals split with the, the sort of Union Liberals. Uh, but that, I think, is a pretty unique moment that is not super instructive. Um, what that, And then you had the, the Orange Wave, obviously, in 2011, which a lot of people wrote very premature edit, uh, obituaries for the Liberal Party. <laughs> um, and, and, you Th- know, this book among them. This book among them. And I think like that was not stupid. Uh, and the, but people have a hard time not just extrapolating the present into the future in a big way, uh, which is you know, it's it's not, not understandable and takesmiths have to sort of go where the work is, so I, I don't begrudge them that, they gotta eat too uh, traveling takes myth. Um But ultimately I think, and I would even be so generous as to sort of give him the 2015 election, which was a wave election um, But now looking at that coalition again in 2019 you saw the conservative party get absolutely destroyed in new canadian communities and the gta suburbs like i there is no real way to look at that and say that indicates durability and permanence of those people voting conservative like it is just it did not happen and in fact they lost a lot of ground right like i i point to aaron o'toole as one of the only people standing sort of in the like places you could even call the GTA like it and Lisa rate getting defeated for instance it is it is not a encouraging trend for them in that direction I think the West however like is if anything only becoming more conservative uh, solidly but that coalition now seems split and I think once again if you look back it this prediction came at a time of really 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 profound, St- like strategic weakness of the liberals and much like how the conservatives were deemed to have this like uh data operation that was orders of magnitude better than the liberal one. What the liberals did was caught up. They caught up with data. They caught up with, uh, with ethnic outreach and I think have more or less completely made that up or even surpassed where the conservatives were in most respects. And now in a moment, now that they've reassembled their traditional coalition and done all this new outreach, they are, very very strong and it's not to say that they will always be strong because obviously things change but i think the big shift thesis is not really borne out
1: so let me challenge you on a few points here um doug ford and the gta
0: that's an interesting point that i was thinking about because i think it is the one uh big weird thing here and i would once again though i think you have to look at a point of historical weakness of their main competition yeah of right the win government yeah the win government being historically unpopular and the ndp having so little infrastructure in outer toronto and the gta that they weren't able to capitalize on it as effectively as the Ford conservatives were much like with the 2011 election i think you have to give it another run before you can really conclusively say that there's a trend there sure uh, but it, you're right like it is a, it is a data point that should give people pause but i think you can explain it in a similar context as the 2011 pr- and pre-2011 kind of predicates that this thesis was built on and see some of the same structural weaknesses there
1: the the other challenge that comes to mind is Reaction to the Donald Trump or almost backlash, Canadian backlash to the Donald Trump um, victory in sort of subsequent governing years. Is there a reticence uh, among the base or the community that are identified by uh, Bricker and Ibbotson mm-hmm. to voting conservative that has l- l- resulted in them being softer liberals than perhaps they would otherwise be? Uh, or rather softer conservatives okay, yeah. more jumping back and forth, uh, more promiscuous in their vote because of uh, a anti-immigration, a strong and powerful current of anti-immigration, Southern or uh, American conservatism. I
0: don't really... It's, I'm going to preface this by saying we don't really know uh, because we just don't have the, the kind of data to say sure. confidently either right. I would actually posit that that's not the case because typically... Voters in immigrant communities tend to have fairly immigration hawkish views.
1: Yes. Um, but it depends. I, I think there's... I always, think, well, as I yeah, say, it always depends. I, I agree. Um, particularly, and I think the data bears us out when it comes to legal versus illegal yep. forms of... Immig- well, legal, regular, illegal, Politically
0: to, correct Etienne over here. We don't need to litigate this. <laughs> Bowing to the CBC.
1: Um... No, CBC actually uses illegal. Oh, yeah, not not irregular. They sure
0: do. Yeah, people get mad at them every time.
1: Um, That versus things like, you know, uh, family reunification, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which, yeah, they're very big on. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. naturally, (laughs) yes, um, because it's very much in their interest. Yes. Um, So I think there are different conversations to be had within the hawkishness on immigration views. Yeah. Uh, but I think things like general resentment and growing tides of hatred and things yeah. like that are likely to concern at yes. um, the communities in Canada when they look to our southern neighbors. I th- and
0: Yeah, and I think you look at stuff like the Yellow Vest protests, which I think were given way more attention than they deserved uh, to begin with. But like we're not indicative of a conservative movement going a healthy direction. Let's put it that way. No comment. <laughs> no, I was, I was I was trying to think of my next point. Um, no, I think I think there's something to that in that you have a hardening of attitudes about immigrants and cultural diversity on the sort of base of the conservative party um, that are, is, I would imagine, quite off-putting to a lot of people. Uh, who would otherwise consider voting for. I, if that's what... Yes, okay. So, if that's If that's what you mean, then I kind of agree with
1: that. Well, no, let, let me just point out some fundamental conflicts. And let, let me actually start with the NDP um, as an example of this. The NDP base, and this is sort of always the way I've seen it. When I put it to Nathan Colin. he somewhat disagreed, but I've always seen the NDP base as sort Great of... Great episode, a, by the way. A uh, An interesting conflict between different groups, uh, two primary ones I'd point to, sort of the... Blue-collar unionists of your, yeah, uh, which still exist but are dwindling in numbers number, for sure, um, with the urban progressives, yeah, and that generally these two groups have nothing. No overlap in their way of life. No, in their they share, in many of their perspectives. Yeah,
0: they share a commitment to redistributist economic policy. Yeah, the, yeah, but
1: that is the center of the Venn I agree. diagram. Yeah, is, completely it is incredibly small. It is it
0: is an, a party of an economic coalition and not a cultural one.
1: The Conservative Party, in similar ways, um, we just made reference to how Shear tried to appeal to Quebec. Yeah, that is always an interesting position to take when the Western conservative movement for years has been in response or in perceived over-influence of Quebec, yes, um, against the influence of Quebec. Yes. So at the same time, the Western conservative movement is saying, we want what Quebec has. Uh, We dislike that Quebec is blocking us on things. We dislike that Quebec is disapproving of this, that, and the other thing. To
0: some degree, we dislike that Quebec is French, but
1: Um, that's, a different element. <laughs> but to take it to the yellow vest and the um, to, to draw out the same parallel with the anti-immigration parts of the conservative base, which mm-hmm. certainly do exist, as well as the immigrant side of the conservative base. Yeah. The Jason Kenny sort of work that he is widely credited with having done yes. throughout the his tenure in cabinet, Minister yeah. of Multiculturalism, Minister of Immigration, etc., was substantial outreach to those bases. Yep. To get them in conservative camps. Yeah. Um, well, to yeah, an extent, it, others have carried on his mantle. Yeah. But I don't think to the same degree. Yes,
0: but immigration was not the issue it is now. The sort of cultural cultural diversity was not an issue that it is now. So they were able to do that in a bit of an issue space where they were able to bury – or not really bury they, – they were not salient, right? Like these these central cleavages were not visible.
1: Or they were not cleavages. I well, I think when they were made visible um, was basically in 2015 with uh, the Syria sort of the coming to fore of the Syrian conflict in the minds of Canadians. Yeah, with refugees uh, migrating across Europe and coming to Canada and all, all of the rest of these questions is when immigration really came back yep. on the uh, on the agenda as a national issue. Yes. And one that conservatives perhaps had to reckon with, well, conservatives and other political parties had uh, to reckon with. Everyone had with, to reckon with it. Um, in a way that they didn't in the subsequent yeah. you know, well, it's six, certainly been, six to eight years. Yeah, and it's
0: characterized the sort of collapse or, you know, slow collapse of, of centrist politics in Europe too, right? Is that like you either have a uh like the sort of center-left approach of not talking about it um has backfired on european social democratic parties and you have center-right parties that are drifting further right on sort of cultural issues to head off their sort of further right upstart parties which has had a mixed success i think Hmm. like brexit you can draw a straight line to it was a political problem for david cameron that UKIP existed and that he had a strong right flank in the Conservative Party that was very skeptical of Europe and of immigration, and that now we can draw a straight line to to the present situation there where you have a fairly hard right government um, that is, you know, there to, to do things. Um, so, yeah, like that, you're right that that was a fairly important realigning Or it's not really realigning, but increasing the salience of a bundle of issues that were not as salient in the decade or two before, especially coming after um, five, six, seven years where the sort of politics of the post 2008 era were sort of the central fact. Um, And that's, I think, a big loss for for parties that are left of center and that, you know, as as many people have observed, you should never waste a crisis. And uh, 2008, I think, can go down as one of the, the most wasted crises in history uh,
1: by a variety of actors. But there you go. So one of my reasons in bringing that up was if, if we're going to call uh, the 2015 election a mulligan for... Yeah, and uh, I would. Br- I would. It was, a wave, Ibbotson, it was a wave election and it, it bees what it bees. Your, your argument, um, which to an extent I agree with, um, is that the block that Ibbotson and Bricker describe. Has not coalesced. It has not shown to have the permanence. Yeah. Um, in the conservative camp. When it went the
0: other direction entirely,
1: like they should have. If you believe Ibbotson and Bricker,
0: they should have held GTA seats or slightly strengthened their position, or at the worst, lost less than they did in other places. But that is the place where they lost the most. It is where they got completely shellacked. And actually, so did the NDP. Right. Like the Liberals dominated the GTA did not lose a single seat and uh like you really like that is powerful like
1: yeah because (laughs) it was because of the number that is
0: the feat uh, the liberals pulled off this election was just dominating the
1: GTA. so i guess my question to go back to it is with so since the using the syrian crisis as the wedge That has people really put their cards on the table, re-immigration. Yeah. Jason Kenney leaves federal politics. Yeah. Uh, Conservatives wind down, let's say, their outreach in some of these cultural communities. Or or, just the liberals start hustling. Or reduce. Yeah. But pair this with liberals ramping up their machine in every which shape and form. Uh, That machine having a strong message of sort of charter multiculturalism. Yeah. Um. Is, I guess, the conclusion that we're coming to is that the base that uh, Bricker and Ibbotson described as going conservative for the foreseeable future because of social conservative values or cultural conservative values. Exactly, yeah. um, Perhaps the salience of those has not been governing the voting decisions of these cultural groups. Yeah, and is not necessarily indicative of how.
0: But yeah, that's almost like a they good, will vote in future. It's all—it's a good way to talk about the sort of post two thousand eight frame of politics versus the post twenty fifteen frame of politics, in which you have a shift from the salience of economic issues to salience of cultural ones, and I think that conservative base is more imaginable when you're talking about the sort of like small business free market kind of stuff that that resonates. Um, Rather than we're talking about NICABs and what have you, right? That we've had at the forefront of national conversation since 2015. I mean... Well, not forefront, but like much more salient than they were before.
1: The, the other part of this I think worth bringing in is that the Liberal Party, um, their messaging has, you know, it hasn't been some vision of macroeconomic anything. Well, oh, yeah. uh, Not really. Um, they more, not, so,
0: more so the first time around
1: they're not the party with the economic credentials um, that were so heralded in sort of the Martin and Chrétien years
0: I think that's a very loaded way to talk about economic credentials in the sense that
1: you're talking about deficit reduction but but <laughs> ba- bear with me on that I'm bearing with you they, they have largely jettisoned the history of how the liberal party viewed sort of the economic frame of Canada but um, and more so, I, I know you're having... I know, but you're talking about a moment in the Liberal Party's history,
0: right, it, that was responding to a sort of decades-long fiscal crisis, or a sort of the crisis that was the de- result of decades of build-up. Sure, sure. less so but, under like, Trudeau. But, like, who did the build-up,
1: right? Like, less, less so under Trudeau and others. Yeah. But I think broadly, I, I mean, at least in sort of, like, living memory of most people who are voting very, today. Well,
0: living memory of people under 35, I think we're, you're, you're
1: biasing this by looking at
0: your own generational viewpoint a little a little hard.
1: I guess it depends how far back you want to go. Yeah, but I think if you if, I, you, I if you go to Tim Hortons ears. if you go to a
0: Tim Hortons in Saskatchewan and you say, "Do you think of the Liberals as a deficit-cutting party?" They would laugh in your face, <laughs> right? Like the Kraytian Martin thing is a impression unique to people about our age,
1: give or take. I don't entirely agree with you. Okay, I think it go give or take. I think becomes something more of up to age fifty. I think a lot more people when they identify with the modern liberal with the Liberal Party. Period. Not the mm-hmm. modern. Not Trudeau's. Sure. Juniors' spin on the Liberal Party, um, but I think a lot of them identify with some combination of fiscally conservative. My favorite and, people. And socially. <laughs> My <productive>. favorite <famous> people. <laughs> um, and that was sort of emblematic of the Martin Kretzian years. Okay. Um, which, which, of course, is, you know, our, our recency bias and our lived experience bias of the, the years that we've yeah.
0: been. your privilege at the end.
1: That we've been alive for. Um, but to a large extent, I still think that that remains ingrained more so in most liberal voters' minds than sort of the jumping back to the Pierre Elliott Trudeau years. I don't think that the vast majority, putting aside the new the new liberals... Sure. I think um, you also have to look at perhaps... Which is more G- of a cultural liberalism than yes. a...
0: I think perhaps there's a gap here where older voters, like older, older voters, like over 60, do have strong memories of the Pierre Trudeau years. And voters sort of in that Gen X to young boomers gap are more in that frame where they're thinking more Crayton Martin.
1: I think Such that's older yeah. yeah. I, I think that's right. Um, but drawing drawing to my point, I think the current iteration of the Liberal Party has basically jettisoned. Like, it is they, not they, a party. They, you're right. They, it is not a party that very, is about economics. no. But they did this very consciously yes. in like very tangible ways yeah. in not bringing in martin kretz and year people yeah 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 they're right kicked out all their senators who were from the kretz and martin yeah. years like it, they just completely yes. jettisoned and all of that you
0: are correct that it is not a party that is about economics it is a party that is about uh that is about cultural politics and to the degree that it is about economics is about identification with a vague middle
1: yes yes uh, best defined by what is the middle class <laughs> uh people go, go, who to, like hockey. Or go yeah. to hockey or something yes
0: so i, I take
1: your point there and now I forgot how I was going to tie it into my, my broader thesis. Well, that, um, that
0: happens sometimes. Shit. You know, it's okay. Uh, it's 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 the end of the year. I think everyone can cut you a break. I think we'll probably call her there if uh, we're we're at an hour ten so yeah it hasn't been looking at the clock i have but he was having so much fun that i, I didn't really <laughs> want to stop him uh that will do it for us everyone uh, thank you for for listening to this very discursive episode of the boys in short pants uh we'll be back in the new year of course delivering uh hard hits tranchant analysis and bon mots uh all the stuff you know and love and uh we're gonna do it with a smile on our face and in, in 2020 dudes rock all right bye bye everyone